Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show podcast. This is your host, Walker Near. Today's episode, I kind of explore uh, the subject of leadership, and then I also talk about the American prison system to some extent, and just uh, this YouTube channel I found that's got all these interviews with these different prisoners. Uh, and then finally, I wrap up with uh, some suggestions for content, some some music, a, a podcast episode that I really liked, and uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, and <laughs> how I've began watching them, and why maybe you should do if you haven't already. Uh, as always, today's show is produced by Misha Zarens, who also does the artwork and the music. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoy. What's up, guys? So a topic that I actually consider quite often is that of leadership and what is leadership and I guess maybe, you know, what is effective leadership or how is uh, how is leadership demonstrated? Because sometimes leadership comes from people who aren't in a position of leadership within, you know, a particular hierarchy. Um so if you look at what is leadership, you know, I guess you can start with the definition, which it says is the action of leading a group of people organization. And I, I mean, I think that's pretty self-evident or, or that's a pretty, you know, simple uh, definition that that probably any of us could have come up with. But it still doesn't really answer the question of what what does effective leadership actually look like? Um and, you know, it's done in a variety of ways, so there probably isn't really one best answer. You know, I'm going to talk about the military a little bit, but I've never been in the military. So, you know, if anyone has any additional insight on on that kind of stuff, by all means, you know, hit me up with some feedback. But if, if you look at the military, for example, that leadership style is very authoritarian, right? The leadership issues commands, the subordinates follow those commands, and there's no real discussion or questioning of those commands, you know, sports teams, at least in youth, are you know, are at the amateur level, are, are constructed in a similar way. Um, it makes sense in the military to have that kind of authoritarian leadership style because you know you've got life and death situations potentially, you know, coming up, and it makes sense that you would want to have people just kind of receive orders and and not uh, not spend time questioning or or considering things that that might lead to, to more harm, you know, than good. In amateur sports, it probably also kind of makes sense because kids are stupid and don't really know <laughs> what they're doing. I was horribly uncoachable as a kid, um, and I was stupid. And, you know, you don't really have enough insight often to contribute in really meaningful ways. Now, as you get older, that, you know, changes more and more. But I would guess that it's rare that, you know, a 12-year-old has some insight into a basketball game um, that's really that that meaningful. I could be wildly off. I don't talk to a lot of 12-year-old basketball players, but that's just kind of my sense of it. Um, and ultimately, if, you know, if the players in youth sports just trust the coach and execute the plan, then even if it fails, the coach can probably, you know, correct, make, make adjustments and correct uh, the situation. Whereas if the players are just kind of coming up with their stuff on their own, then it, it doesn't really make as much sense. I will say, though, at the professional level, you actually don't see that uh, at the professional level. The leader, the, the you know, will take, I, I guess it depends. You know, you look at the New England Patriots in football, and it's very much that kind of authoritarian style that I've been talking about. But 
if you look at like the NBA, for example, um, where the players have more power individually than 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 they do in the NFL, it's a lot more collaborative. You know, I mean, certainly there are coaches like a Greg Popovich who for the San Antonio Spurs who kind of, you know, runs runs the show his own way and 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 is definitely looked at as kind of just the figurehead there. But there's a lot of stories of coaches, you know, at the NBA level asking players what they think makes the most sense or or coming up with a plan and then listening to players' feedback and adjusting it on the fly like during a timeout when they're drawing up a play or, or you know that sort of thing. And I think that it makes sense at that level because at that level the players do have a lot of insight and it would make sense that they might have seen something or might be aware of something that, that was missed by, you know, by the coach. Um, there's an author, Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball and the big short, the books, not the, the movies, um, but the movies were adapted from his books and he wrote Flash Boys and uh, The Blind Side. And I don't know, just a, a lot of, uh, he's written a lot of books in the last 20, 20 ish years. Um, I actually haven't read one of his books, but I've watched the movies that are the product uh, of his books, and the movies are great. I mean, Moneyball is one of the best movies I've ever seen, and The Big Short is maybe one of my. Oh, I, I, I started to say it's my favorite movie of all time, but you know that's tough because there's so many. But um, Big Short is absolutely you know top five movies for me of all time. I, I love it. Anyway. <laughs> segue there or tangent but anyway Michael Lewis said that he recently in an interview I was listening to that he would like to uh, he's really considered trying to to write a book about what it's like to be a head coach in the NBA and what it's like to manage from a position of no real power you know the coaches make less than the players do and, you know, as you see with like a, you know, like LeBron James kind of has a notorious reputation for, for getting rid of coaches that he doesn't like. I mean, at the end of the day, LeBron James sells tickets way more than any head coach ever could, right? And like I talked about at the very beginning of the, this whole podcast, one of the, I think it's episode two maybe or something, um, sports is a business. And so even if the coach is, is right, and the player is wrong. And in the case of LeBron James, for example, LeBron James is the business. So, you know, so he wins. Anyway, so Michael Lewis was saying he'd like to embed himself with a coach. And he actually wanted to do Greg Popovich specifically to look at how how they approach leadership when you can't ever really threaten anyone. You can't really, there's not really any way to, um, to intimidate them into doing what you want. Whereas, you know, in most... At most jobs, even if it's largely collaborative, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, if there's something that you are being asked to do that you don't want to, more than likely you're going to. Because unless there's a very compelling reason that you don't, you're there for the check. And, you know, that that's why you got to go. Anyway, so... So I, just, I thought that was an interesting kind of tidbit there, thinking about NBA coaches and how they have to, to try and... Um, navigate leadership versus, you know, most typical ways and, and really con- contrasting that against the way that youth sports are done. I mean, college coaches, that's a thing in football a lot, right? College coaches yell and scream and, and basketball too and freak out on their players. And it, it kind of works because they're still kids and, you know, the coach can take away a scholarship. The coach can 
do a lot of things to impact. The coach isn't going to get fired if a player doesn't play. Because in college sports, players aren't what sells the tickets. It's the brand, you know. Alabama football isn't famous because of a certain player. They're famous probably mostly because of Nick Saban, the coach, right? Anyway, so I can say that, you know, for me personally, um, the authoritarian leadership style is absolutely rejected by me, you know, as an adult in the corporate world. Um, it's not something I encounter that often, but when I do, I definitely <laughs> will pick that fight. Um, I'm much more respond and, and appreciate a, a more collaborative style of leadership. And at the very least, when I say collaborative, I just mean kind of transparent. You know, I understand the leader can't ask every subordinate's, you know, opinion or for their approval on every single decision as that would be paralyzing. And that's, you know, that's not what the <laughs> the manager's there to make those decisions to some extent. So I, I get that. But I think that, you know, a good leader at least will provide context for why they make the choices that they do. Um, and if a leader's in a role that for a while, you know, uh, for a, a period of time with the same subordinates, then I think the subordinates can learn to trust that person. And, and so then as you build that trust, you know, that, that transparency or that constant, um, explaining explanation of, of why things are the way they are, I think reduces a bit. I mean, obviously you still want to be able to have that, that conversation if you want to have it, but if you work with someone for long enough and they consistently do the right thing, then eventually you start to trust that they, they're, they're going to do that. And you don't have that burden of constantly wanting to understand more. Um, but there are leaders who are just plain bad. You know, they're not serving the organization or the team. They're trying to, I guess, serve themselves. Uh, and these people are, are very hard to deal with because obviously, honestly, most of the time they don't understand that, that they're doing a bad job, you know, they're because it's not the lack of effort. It's not that they're work, not working hard or not trying or not thinking about it. It's just that, you know, for me, at least whenever I see leadership that seems truly effective, it it's, you know, it's that phrase servant leadership. It's where you're identifying as the leader, how you can make your subordinates more successful, which will in turn lead to your success as the leader of, you know, of that group or, or of that team or whatever it may be. Um, and again, you know, I don't mean that, <laughs> that the person becomes a doormat and runs and gets coffee for someone if they want it or, 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 you know, petty, ridiculous things, but just simply, you know, if someone's struggling you can tell them to buck up and figure it out. And maybe sometimes that's the right answer, but maybe sometimes it's also more effective to understand what barriers they have and then try and remove those barriers. And now that person's more effective and it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, you critiquing their attitude. Um, the most important factor of leadership that I can come up with honestly is trust. You know, if you're in the military and the officer tells you to do something, yeah, you've been trained to follow that command and, and all of that things. But to some extent, I think you've also been trained to trust that command. You believe that whatever is being requested is going to lead to the right outcome. Uh, and I think that's true of the coach as well. You know, you run the play that they call because you trust them. And the same is true in the adult work life world. If you trust a leader, you will follow them happily. How a leader engenders this trust probably varies a bit from person to person, but I think that time and consistency is is probably the most foolproof method. 
uh, I think next to trust is the ability to inspire people. And, you know, I think inspire is kind of a tricky word because inspire almost implies, you know, that it's some uh, <laughs> jump out of bed and, you know, Christmas morning and, you know, Santa here. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't mean that necessarily, but it just how do people how do you how does a leader get people around them to want to do more? Um, you know, I've recently been reading this book how to win friends and influence people, which is a very old famous book. And in it, there's a story about Charles Schwab, who is the first CEO to be paid $1 million in an annual salary at a time when most people, uh, made about $50 a week on average. So, uh, you know, a million a year is insane. And I mean, a million a year now is still a lot of money, but at that time it was, you know, absolutely astonishing. When, when he was asked why he was worth that much, Schwab said that he wasn't the best expert, expert in his field. He wasn't the most skilled person in, in, in his industry. But he thought that he, the reason he was that valuable was because of his ability to inspire enthusiasm in those around him. And I don't know if you can inspire without trust first. You know, I mean, I think maybe you could, you could start off with a high level of motivation but to maintain that sense of inspiration or whatever, you're going to have to deliver on the promises. Uh, that trust is going to have to be there. And if if people are inspired, you know they'll they'll commit themselves to something and carry the load, if you will, in ways that that a leader may have not even anticipated. Um, so you know the ways in which a leader micromanages, reprimands, praises all of those items, um, I think are the way that they do that drives how much trust and, and inspiration the subordinates have and therefore what the, the success level of that group is going to be. Um, I've worked at a lot of companies in my life and um, the vast majority of them are, don't, don't really engender that sense of trust. You know, I, I worked at a call center for years where we were supposed to be doing, you know, technical support and customer service. And so there's a lot of training about empathy and there's a lot of training about how to talk to the customer. But what they did don't have is is systems in place to make sure that the customer's problem gets addressed. And I think that that's really true in companies and in this so this company was an example of that. I don't really care to say the name of the company, but um, it's a really big computer manufacturer. We'll say that. And they sell so many computers to what I call the, the faceless millions that they don't really care if you don't if you don't come back around because there's someone else to sell you know the, the computer to. Um, after that, I went to work for a software company that has a significantly smaller customer base, you know, it, it's customer base. And I don't even mean the customers it has literally the entire field of customers is in the thousands. And so you don't have that same kind of luxury. And so the difference is, is that at the larger or the company with the larger customer base, they tell you that you're supposed to be empathetic and they tell you that you're supposed to, you know, how to try and help the customer. But in the end, if whatever the customer's problem is doesn't fit into one of the few boxes that have been pre-designed, 
then there's not really anything to do. I mean, and beyond that, though, it's not even just a, a lack of, of of options. For example, in most customer service call centers that deal with consumers, you know, end users, if you ask to speak with a manager, the training is that that they're supposed to rebut or deny that escalation sometimes as many as three or four times and make you as the customer keep asking. And finally, after you've hit whatever magical number, you know, that they've arbitrarily set, then, then you can, then you can escalate. But so it, it, I mean, nothing about that says that they're trying to, to help resolve anything. Everything about it says that they, they just want they just want it over. They just want the customer off the phone. And so if you can continue to tell them no and continue to reiterate the position and they'll get frustrated enough that they hang up, then then good enough. Um, and the reason I explain all that is to say that from a, a, a you know a person being led as the employee there, looking at the leadership, you you, you don't trust it because they tell you one thing, but then the way that that it actually is all ran is something totally different. And so, Instead, it engenders this feeling of, of that like the company is built on cutting corners, which probably isn't true. But in that space, that's how it feels. And so then, as the employee, you cut corners, and and it turns into this toxic environment where the company has cut corners on the way it set itself up. At least that's perceived by the employee. So the employee now starts cutting corners on their own, right? Because they're going to get theirs. Well, now the company recognizes the corners are being cut, so they start micromanaging and coming up with policies to try and prevent these corners from being cut. But it just depends on how bold you are. There's always another corner to cut. I mean, <laughs> there was a period where where I was working at a place one time where we had a, a very strict lunchtime. And if you were even you know a minute or two over on that, then... You know, you're going to get corrective action and do that a couple of more times and you're terminated. You know, you, you got no job now. So instead of logging out normally for lunch, we would just pull the cord on the on the computer, just unplug it without doing any any other action to prepare it for that. Well, what would happen is by just shutting the power off, the application that showed that you were logged in would show that you were still logged in for an additional 15 minutes before it would automatically log you out. Um, so... We got an extra 15 minutes of lunch. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous <laughs> to just unplug the computer from the wall. But again, you know, it, it, it's this constant battle between the company and the employee as opposed to, to them trying to really work together. Um, my dad for a long time worked at a, a warehouse that is the employees are all unionized and, you know, People have different opinions on unions. I personally, I think that there is some value to them. I think that there's a period of time where they went, it went too far. Um, you know, I don't know what the best solution to that is necessarily, but I would just say that, uh, you know, I certainly think that that collective bargaining has real, real power and and has real value. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely not anti-union <laughs> or anything like that. I say that to say that, despite all of that, the, the environment that exists at this warehouse is the union, or at least the members of the union that work there, 
basically openly hate the company. I mean, it the, it's very rare that I've ever heard anything said positive about about the company, and the company acts like the Teamsters are, you know, like a prison workforce or something that they have that they have very little respect for it, and everything because it's this this feud and everything is built upon like both parties making sure that the other one isn't taking too much advantage it just turns into this really gross environment where it's constantly toxic people are constantly upset about the company the company's constantly looking for ways to get rid of people or, or hold people accountable for things or catch someone in a really little slip up so they can you know stick it to them and as such the employees you know <laughs> do everything they can to look good on paper and take advantage of any other opportunity they can um, the company that I that I went to work for after that call center that I explained it's just it doesn't feel that way it's a it's a very different environment it's honestly the only place I've ever worked and I've literally worked at I think over 30 companies I counted one time and it's the only place I've ever worked where you feel like they actually care because if you don't know how to solve something there are other resources and people and things that you can go to that will make sure that it's resolved one way or the other and it doesn't mean that every time a customer wants something you have to give it to them it just means that there needs to be an explanation and sometimes it does need to be an explanation from a higher level person as to why things are a certain way um I always go to use the example that when people call into a 1-800 number and shout about something, it's kind of like going to a grocery store and complaining to the bag boy about your <laughs> about a price or about anything that you don't like about the store. <laughs> the bag boy has no power. So it's very ridiculous to 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 go to to go to a bag boy and shout about that you don't like the the price of meat or something, right? No one would do that, but people all day long will call up a giant corporation on a Wendy Hunter number and shout about that they don't like, you know, the price or the policy or whatever <laughs> the company's set. And the person that you're talking to has nothing to do with that. Um, and honestly, most of the time, the reason that you find yourself shouting at them is because they also don't have any other option. They, they've been told to just tell you, you know, tough. Um, and yeah, the, the company that I went to after that, which again, you know, not really interested in naming, but they don't, it's not that way. If you don't know how to resolve it and the customer's not satisfied with what you can provide, then there are other people that you can engage. There are other people that you can loop in to, to, to get it, you know, something addressed. Um, and so the reason I explain all this isn't to explain my job or something. It's just simply explain that it builds a trust because there are other avenues to resolve something if you don't know what to do and because it really does feel like the company's bought into to solving it it engenders this sense of trust which for me at least does actually inspire me to do a better job and to do more because I feel like we're all actually participating in something real whereas with the other stuff it always felt like it's you know some sort of dog and pony show um I think with leadership, you know, it's not that a leader has to be everybody's best friend, but it's interesting to see the parallels between between friendship type relationships and, and leadership. You know, I think to be somebody's friend, 
trust, again, is the, the first and most important thing. And maybe that's true of literally any relationship, you know. <laughs> if you're going to have a relationship with a dog, you kind of trust that it's not going to bite you, right? So maybe it's not just friendships, but just all relationships are really based on trust. And and after that, you know, it, it's that inspiration that, that, fuels, that fuels other relationships, especially friendships. You know, I can trust somebody to be nice, but if I don't think that they're cool or, you know, whatever word you want to use, then I'm probably not going to pursue a relationship of, of much significance. You know, so again, maybe instead of leadership, all relationships are based off of trust and inspiration, first and foremost, and everything else is kind of a, you know, a derivative of that. I've also, um, I don't remember where I heard it, but I heard somewhere once that, that leadership is expressed through influence. So whether or not you're actually the leader in a hierarchy or at the head of something, if you are influencing or if a person is influencing decisions and uh, direction often, then you are expressing leadership because ultimately leadership is the person making the decisions, right? And the person who is accountable for it. And so if you're helping those form those decisions, then to some extent you are expressing leadership. And I think it's it's a really interesting way to think about it, and it's not something that I can really uh, find fault in the logic of. Like I've talked about, you know, on the walk show before, you know, there, there's nuance to all things. Um, so I'm sure there's some ideas or or thoughts that I've you know brushed over, or maybe scenarios where my logic doesn't doesn't hold water. So, you know, if you've got if you've got any thoughts on this, I think it's a really interesting topic and one that that. Um, you know, I know there are books written on it, so I, I should probably should be reading some books, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's an interesting conversation. And so if any of you have any thoughts or comments, email me at walker at the walkshowpodcast.com and I'd be happy to, to read and, and respond and explore those ideas, you know, on a future episode. So I had some suggestions for content that I was going to go through. Um, again, you know, not that, that you guys need me to <laughs> provide all of your content sources that you're looking for me to, but if you find yourself in a drought, these might be some things to check out. Um, musically, there is a band called The XX, uh, which is a guy and girl duo. Um, really, really, really beautiful music. It's, um, I, I want to say guitars maybe there's some drums i'm so bad at picking out <laughs> what the different instruments are uh sometimes people will do you know percussion just by tapping on the guitar while they play and i'm like oh there's drums there's not i don't know in the case of the xx um 
what all is there other than to say that it's really, really kind of like down tempo and, and chill music. Um, the, the, the guy and the girl are both really good vocalists and have, um, really, again, just, you know, beautiful duets that they do. Um, it's kind of a, it's not really, it doesn't sound like, you know, I don't, I don't know how you would describe it because it's not like electronic music or something. Um, but it's not really folksy or anything like that. It kind of reminds me of Zero Seven, which is a, a much bigger count of instruments and members. And, uh, you know, some of that I think is a little more electronic. But, um, if you've ever listened to Zero Seven, then I think the XX would be something that, that you would like quite a bit. Um, they're not new. I've listened to them for, for several years now. Uh, but it's something that a lot of people I encounter aren't familiar with. And, and so I would highly recommend that you check out the XX for maybe some easy, easy listening, you know, on a, an evening where you want to chill out and have some wine and read or something, or maybe, uh, on a nice walk or a bike ride. It could be a, a good little soundtrack, you know, for that. Um, I recently watched an episode of Joe Rogan where he has a guy named Bob Lazar, who I had never heard of. Um, this is a guy who worked for Area 51 or a subset of Area 51 in the 80s. And his claim is that in Area 51, there were, I think, nine different what appeared to be very clearly alien spacecraft or, or you know, craft. Uh, I don't, I guess he didn't say they went to space, but that's where they had to come from, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so. Anyway, he claims that he worked on one of these um, one of these ships, and that uh, that 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 yeah, there's just some really interesting technology there, and that largely it's stuff that's not that's beyond our comprehension at this point. He compared it to if you were to drop a nuclear reactor off in the Victorian age, like they might be able to understand that it generates power, and they might be able to understand that you know oh this thing is the fuel source, and you know whatever. But they have no idea how it works, and they're really, really far away from understanding the things that would lead up to them being able to understand that. Um, so he was in his 20s whenever he was doing this work, and he invited some of his friends to come watch uh, some of the test flights that these craft were doing aircraft or whatever. And so he did, and, and he did that three separate times. The first time he just brought his friends with him, and then the second and third time they filmed it. Well, the third time when they went to film it, they they were, were caught by security for having done so. And so he was immediately removed from that project. And then he went to a friend of his or someone that he knew in the media and actually published, <laughs> or, you know, in the, in the the on the news, they just told his story of what he had been witnessing and what he had seen. And according to him at that point, a lot of his identity was destroyed, you know, no longer has a birth certificate on file. Uh, universities he went to no longer show him as having attended there. Companies he worked for prior to working for the government in this capacity no longer show that he record of him being employed there. But then other people have come through and, you know, provided a directory that shows his name at, in that company directory at the time that they claim he didn't work there. Um, supposedly he, I, he was aware of an element, element 115 that was not on the periodic table in the eighties. He spoke about it at that time, claiming that's, that that was what the fuel source was. 
and of course, you know, all that was denied, but now element 115 does exist on the periodic table. Um, I've never been someone that cares at all about alien conspiracy time. Now I say that, I also firmly believe that it would make sense that there's life on other planets, because why would it only be here with there being infinite possible planets out there? Um, but I don't, I don't ever care about listening to someone I get deducted by aliens or, you know, see aliens or whatever. I don't, I, I'm not into it. However, um, this guy's story is not an, at all about aliens. It's about seeing this, this ship and the technology of it. And I, it's kind of believable. I gotta say, and as, as skeptical as I am, I feel weird admitting that or saying that, but it was the most believable thing dealing with extraterrestrials and, and someone interacting with that that I've ever that I've ever seen. And mostly that's because there are all these claims that were made back then that can now be demonstrated to be true now. Um, but, you know, all that being said, what he says is still very far-fetched and very hard to, <laughs> to, to truly rationalize, so I get that. So I'm not advocating that everyone should absolutely believe that there are alien spacecraft in Area 51 and whatever. Um, but if it was true, it wouldn't be shocking to me, I guess. Like, it, it's plausible. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Is it I, I think that it's plausible. Whereas most of the other stories that I've ever heard in that arena, I would not I would not define, you know, as plausible. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting conversation. There's a documentary about it out now, which is, I think, kind of what spawned him coming on the Joe Rogan show. Uh, so yeah, I would highly recommend checking it out and uh, kind of seeing what you think. And I'd be interested to know, did you find that it was uh, really in, interesting and insightful? And did you find it plausible or did you think it was completely ridiculous? And if so, you know, why? Uh, I would I would be very interested to, to read those comments and talk about it again, you know, on a future episode. Uh Finally, I'll talk about movies, and, and this is pretty a pretty bad suggestion because I think most of you, <laughs> I'm the late one to the party on this, absolutely. Um, I watched the, the first few Marvel movies a long time ago, and while I liked Iron Man okay, basically was like, no, I hate, I hate them. Uh, and so I refused to watch any of them, and I haven't watched them for a long time. Well... Then, well, that's actually not entirely true. I did watch Guardians of the Galaxy and Doctor Strange and Black Panther. But as far as like Captain America, Thor, the Avengers, I didn't watch any of those. Well, now, you know, the invent the 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 last Avengers movie or the most recent Avengers movie has just been out in the, these last few months. And while I didn't like the original movies that I saw back in the day, I think that it's really, really cool that they've created over the last, you know, roughly 10 years, a little longer, but whatever. Um, 23 movies, I believe it is, that have all at least some shared narrative. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like a TV series, you know, except they're movies. And so the, the you know, instead of being episodes that are directly connected, they're more loosely connected than that. But I think that's really cool that they built that universe. I, I always said I wished I was a kid when those movies started coming out so that I could have grown up being in love with that whole that whole experience. Well, that didn't happen. However, I have decided to go back and start watching them all again to try and make it through all of the movies so that I can see 
what that experience is really like. What is it like to see, you know, 10 years of films that all correlate with one another in, in some way or another. Uh, and so far, I have to say, it's actually been somewhat enjoyable. I have made it through all of the beginning movies up through the first Avengers, and then I watched Captain America Winter Soldier and the second Thor movie. Uh, and I also watched Captain Marvel towards the beginning of those. The order that I'm watching them in is actually not the order in which they were released, but instead the order in which they take place within the timeline of the movie universe. So, like, the very first one is the first Captain America, because that takes place in World War II. Then Captain Marvel is technically set in the 90s, so that would that was the second one. Anyway, it just kind of goes from there. Um... So far, it's been it's been interesting, and and while I can't say that any of the movies are like my absolute favorite thing I've ever seen, I certainly don't dislike them as much as I did previously. I think I was probably just being pretentious, um, and yeah, I don't know, kind of enjoyable. I would recommend if you are in the same boat as me, where you haven't checked those movies out, and you have any interest in like you know, comic book, fantastical type of stuff, then you should absolutely check them out. Um, you know, I know some people that don't like fantastical things at all and and are just turned off by the concept of superheroes altogether. If if you're in that camp, then it's probably still not for you because, again, these aren't... Um, it's not the fountain that we're watching here. Uh, I'll talk about that another time if I haven't before. But anyway, yeah, the MCU movies, I would uh, I would give them a, give them a look. Um, but yeah, so to recap... Uh, the XX for music, uh, again, really, really chill, f- just pleasant music to, to put on. Um, Bob Lazar episode of the Joe Rogan podcast and the, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or MCU movies. Uh, I would give them a give them a check out. And you might you might consider if you hadn't before watching them in the order that I described, where they have that kind of chronological order of the, the universe that they're in. Uh, kind of an interesting take on it as well. As a kid, there was a show on HBO called Oz. Uh, most of you or some of you may be familiar with that. But if you're not, Oz is a TV series about a penitentiary. I think it's like the Oswald State Penitentiary or maybe it's Oswald Federal. I don't really know. I don't remember anymore. Either way, it's called Oz. And um, the show is really just kind of a, you know, a drama. I don't know what you would, I don't know what you would classify it as. I mean, there's plenty of violence and (laughs) other things as well, but, um, 
Yeah, it's just a, an hour-long episode show about prisoners living in this prison. And there's also, you know, the warden and some of the staff at the prison, some of the guards and doctors and the priest. And there's all sorts of different characters that are that are portrayed in the show. It's not just the prisoners. But it's a very brutal show. Um, it's one that I, I, like I said, I watched it as a kid and I don't remember how far I got into it. You know, I we just I would watch it on HBO over at my dad's house whenever it was on, but I didn't have access to it outside of, you know, just when it was on HBO. And then when I became when I got older and and you know was moved out and everything, I, I remember I actually rented <laughs> from Blockbuster, so it was still that long ago. Um, but we rented all the seasons of Oz and watched the you know those DVDs. And it, it's a show that I think I think it was like you know the first four seasons maybe three or four seasons are actually pretty good. Uh, it's interesting stories and interesting twists and I don't know just it, it was good TV. After that, it kind of ran out of juice. It kind of um, it turned into a thing where it was like they just didn't really have any ideas anymore besides X person's going to betray Y person and do something very violent. And then now we'll introduce new characters, and then that'll happen again. And it kind of got formulaic feeling. Um, I would recommend watching it if you have the stomach for it. Again, it's definitely not pleasant, <laughs> mostly. Um, anyway, the reason I explain Oz is that I, I don't know if that's where my kind of fascination or interest in prison and, to some extent, gang culture began. Um, and, and to be clear, when I say, you know, fascination with, I don't mean celebration of, you know, I don't, I've, and I never did, never have, never have and never did aspire to be like those characters or never did I want to go to prison. I was watching this interview on YouTube recently where this dude, um, who grew up in, in street gang culture said that as a child, his dream was to go to prison on a life sentence because he in whatever warped <laughs> sense of reality he has, that was that was the that was the end game. You know, get to the get to be in prison, get a life sentence, and then be in the prison gang world and live that life. And you know, I, I can't. To be clear, I can't justify it at all. I doubt he could either. You know, it's something he thought as a kid, and it's something that's you know, frankly naive. Um, but to be clear, I think that I probably have a lot of naivety about that whole culture and lifestyle as well. Cause I've never actually lived it. I've just seen interviews and you know, the way it's portrayed in media, like in Oz or like in the wire or, you know, shows like that. Um, but anyway, there's this, there's this YouTube series on now, uh, that's out there now called fresh out life after the penitentiary. And it, it's hosted by this dude named big Herc and big Herc uh, did 10 years in federal penitentiary for attempted bank robbery. Uh, I mean, I think they actually did rob the bank, but they got caught trying to flee. So I guess maybe it's not attempted at that point. Um, but they didn't actually <laughs> get away for a day or anything. Anyway, so he comes he comes on this YouTube channel and, and he, he shares some of his own stories. But and, and that was more so true at the beginning of the of the YouTube channel. But it's been out for over a year now, and, and, and he's had a lot of different guests. And he's had guests from all over the country. 
the majority of the guests that he has are people that are from uh, California because that's where he's based out of. And yeah, I mean, the insights that they that they give into how awful prison life really is is kind of astonishing. Um, I I'm I've never you know knock on wood <laughs> I've never been arrested, never been to jail, never been to prison, anything like that. And I hope to keep it that way. And not just for the, you know, obvious society reasons of being not wanting to, to have that on your record or something. But honestly, I don't want to go into the mix with those with those people. Um, it's it's crazy. Now, I will say what's interesting is that I think there's different levels to it, but it, it's kind of inverse of what you would think. So I always thought that federal prison would be the worst because it's federal, right? So that's a, the biggest and baddest or something. Incorrect, actually. And the reason for that is that state penitentiaries are actually largely the worst. And the reason for that is that most of the most heinous crimes you can think of, you know, murder, violent assault, sexual assault, things like that, those are all state crimes before they're federal crimes. So they get charged at the state level. Now, I'm sure there's instances where, you know, Things have happened across multiple states and things like that, and so it turns into a federal case. But generally speaking, you know, if you're going to be in a cell with a dude who killed his neighbor, it's probably because that guy was convicted of it at the state level and you're in the state pen with him, right? Um, and the county jail, same kind of thing. You know, county jails are, are typically used for either really short sentences or, you know, um, maybe just holding until you go get assigned to the real prison but same kind of deal because a lot of the guys in the county jail are also you, – you get all sorts of stuff in there. So you never know who you're dealing with. Um, and then, you know, at the federal level, you get more like like bank fraud or um, maybe drug trafficking, like big-time drug traffickers that are across state lines or bank robberies. Like I said, that, that big Herc dude. So – not that not that federal prison is is easy or not that that that's no problem either but you it i think you're less likely to encounter the highest levels of the of the insane violence that exists in these other prisons now i will say you know california state penitentiary system sounds truly awful uh now again most of the guys that i've heard on this fresh out life after the pen youtube channel uh are from California, so there's probably some bias to, to that sentiment. Um, but it it's wild. I mean, the 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 racial politics that exist, you know, again, according to many different people who have been in that system at this point, are are very strict and very brutal. And I mean, it's to the level of like they one guy told a story where he sees a, a young white dude come into prison. He recognizes a black dude that he'd grown up with, walks over to him, shakes his hand, talking to him, blah, 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 ends up taking the guy, the, the, the black friend of his had a water bottle, so he borrowed it and took a drink and you know gave it back or whatever. Well, none of this was acceptable by the white prison gang that's there because you're not supposed to affiliate at all with another race. Certainly, you wouldn't drink after them or anything like that, I guess. And so then this young dude within within the week is out doing pull-ups on the pull-up bar in the yard, the prison yard, and some dudes walk up and just start stabbing him. And that's that. 
And it, I mean, you know, his life is over now. And it was for, for, for nothing, for just this crazy arbitrary idea that, that got made up. And I just can't imagine, I can't imagine living in that kind of environment. Um, I feel like if I was going to go to prison, I might, I might ask to be put in solitary, which they say is horrible for a human. And I mean, I personally am a very socially needy <laughs> kind of person. So I, you know, I might not be able to, to swing it, but I, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I can handle it. And honestly, you know, the thing that most people go to, at least most men go to when they hear about prison is like, oh, well, they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to rape you in prison. Uh, busting cheeks is what they call it on the YouTube channel. And actually, for the most part, most of the guys claim that they aren't, don't really see that, that that's not as common as people think. Um, at least in the California prison system, you know, it's not, not actually that rampant. But, you know, and certainly that's terrifying. But even outside of that, it's just, again, it's just this crazy level of violence. Like this this one guy was describing a story he knew where a, a dude had been in for a couple of years, and that was all his sentence was. And so he's getting ready to get out, and he's got a cellmate. Well, shortly before he gets out, he learns that, well, it is learned, not just he, but it is learned by many that this guy who's getting ready to get out of prison, his cellmate is a child molester. Well, this white prison gang has a policy that they will murder any child molester that's there, that they're aware of. Well, since this dude is his cellmate that's about to get out, it falls to him, just because of his proximity, that it's his job to kill him. And if he doesn't, then the prison gang will come after the guy who's about to get out. Like, he doesn't have anything to do with this. Like, it's, it's about to be over, right? Like, he's about to be free of this life and now you either face committing a pretty horrible act of violence yourself and having to deal with that but then also dealing with whatever legal consequences come from that which maybe is another super long time maybe even life you know depending on if you kill the guy and how it happened and what they convict you on and whatever uh or you have this prison gang chasing you now and maybe you can even find a way to get out of jail but are they are they motivated to to find you even after you get out because they have reach outside of the, the walls of the prison. Um, that's horrifying. Who would, <laughs> who would volunteer for that? Who wants to sign up for that? And it's interesting because on this, this fresh out YouTube channel, the thing that they constantly reinforce is that prison should not be glorified and that people who glorify this lifestyle are sorely mistaken for what they think they're getting into. They think that they're going to be, partying and fist fighting or something and it's like that's not it's not what happens it's way worse than that um i won't go into any more of the graphic stories because they're they're bad but i don't know i i not again not for the spectacle of it and not to celebrate it but to really understand what prison life in america is like i, I highly recommend that you check out fresh out you know life after the penitentiary um there's a guy, Paul Manafort, who is a Trump associate. He was the Trump campaign manager and uh, was convicted in federal court, actually, of some crimes, but now is also being tried in, in New York State at the state level. Uh, he was going to be held in Rikers Island. Well, Rikers Island, I don't know if it's technically a county jail, but it's more in that vein where it's not designed to be a prison where you are sent to serve a 10-year sentence or a five-year sentence or whatever the sentence is. 
it's designed as more like that county jail space where you either are going there while you await trial or you're going there while you await to be sentenced to the, the actual prison that you're going to go to, whatever that case may be. Well, Paul Manafort was going to have to be put in Rikers Island because he's awaiting trial and he's already a prisoner of the federal government, you know, for his conviction there. And there was, there was newspaper articles about it, about what will they do? Paul Manafort, you know, will he survive Rikers Island? Because Rikers Island, it now, you know, I was just talking about how the West Coast is messed up. And that's why I say I think I'm probably just biased because of the, the interviews I've seen. Rikers Island is no joke, and it's on the East Coast. Uh, and Rikers Island is a, a place where, I mean, there was a story within the last few years of a kid who went there and wasn't actually even wasn't actually even convicted of anything. He just was waiting, awaiting trial and it just kept getting postponed over and over again. And if you can't afford bail, you can't get out. So you have to stay there. And so he was abused and assaulted to the level that he eventually took his own life. And it, he's not even, he's not even a criminal. Like he shouldn't be there. So anyway, so Paul Manafort's supposed to go there, which I say, hey, I mean, he's a criminal just like every other criminal, right? I mean, I, I don't care that he's rich. <laughs> Send him. And that didn't happen. The Department of Justice actually intervened, and he's being held at some different, you know, safer facility. Um, now, do I think that it's appropriate that he goes there and gets killed? Well, probably not. But it's not appropriate that anybody goes there and gets killed. It's crazy that the whole society recognizes that it's so dangerous that it would be insane to try and put this man there, except that that's the purpose of the facility as it's a holding facility for people awaiting trial, at least one of its functions. But it's so bad at that because it's so messed up and dangerous that instead another agency intervenes and, and prevents him from having to go there to spare him, which great. You know, again, I, I'm not advocating that he should have gone there and been murdered or something. But what about everyone else who's there? Why don't they get an advocate? Why don't they get someone that can take them out of there? Um, I don't understand why there's not more reform. And when it comes to prisons, and you know, I read an article about prisons in Alabama and how there it was substandard living conditions, and there were constant assaults among the inmates and, and rapes and stuff like that. And it was, you know, so then, then that's the opposite, but there, but there in the South, which is kind of ironic because it's the South, but there's actually not that level of racial segregation, right? So you don't get that same thing, but all of the others, all the violence and the drugs and all the crazy stuff, it's still going on. And, you know, you look at how do things get into to prisons and I'm sure that there are people who come as a visitor that sneak stuff in but I don't know how it couldn't be the guards, largely, that are enabling the weapons and the drugs and, and that sort of stuff to get in. And yes, I know that in prisons, you know, everyone's heard the stories of, oh, they filed the toothbrush down into a shank. That's true, but there are prisons that have, where people have guns. There are prisons, again, the in all of the, the interviews that I've watched, they say that the number one driver of the the prison politics and violence and all that stuff is is the drug trade it's still about people who want to use drugs people who can provide them and then there being a dispute over money because either they couldn't pay or they didn't pay when they said they would or whatever the case may be 
and now there's all this drama and there's all this violence and it all it all what <laughs> how why is there a drug war going on inside of the prison like that doesn't make any sense there should be no drugs there it's prison uh but the american prison system is so awful now that that's that's where it is and uh yeah i don't know i just i i and i get that you know there are non-criminal people who have um who face hardships that we don't address and so there's probably to some extent a sentiment of like why would we fix the prisoner problem when we you know flint michigan still doesn't have running water right because of whatever the problems there are with the pipes why if we can't commit to fixing that why why would we commit to fixing you know prisons and i i can't even say that i don't get that sentiment in some context i mean for me where i have that sentiment is it's actually kind of in the opposite direction but it's it's with the ncaa and how the ncaa is horrible with their amateurism bullshit and the idea that they like uh, that they care about the integrity of amateur sports and the reason that athletes can't make any money is because it would diminish the the essence of the gamers. It's bullshit. It's all bullshit. These, comp- these companies, <laughs> colleges, universities, but companies are raking in money hand over fist from some of these athletic programs. Now, is that every single one of them? Like here, you know, where I live, there's, I don't know, three or four colleges that all have sports teams. And I don't think any of them are just pulling in crazy loads of cash from it because the teams aren't that popular. I mean, they're popular here, but they're not popular elsewhere. But, you know, you look at a football program like Alabama or a basketball program like Duke or something like that. There's no way that they're not making. I mean, they're making millions and millions of dollars and these kids get nothing like Zion Williamson is a draft pick who. Uh, the number one draft pick in the NBA lottery this year. He was the, the most popular college player last season. Well, towards the end of the season, he had an injury. His shoe actually ruptured <laughs> while he was playing, and he, he tweaked his knee, and he went down. And all year, there'd been all this buildup that he's going to be the number one pick, and he's going to, you know, he's going to be rich, and he's going to be all these things. And then when it actually came to it, he gets hurt. Now, it turned out he actually was able to recover within a few weeks, and he ended up, he did become the number one draft pick, and everything seems fine. But if that had been a more significant injury, guess what? He doesn't get drafted, and he doesn't get paid, and he doesn't get that opportunity now. So now, he gave his opportunity to to play basketball at a high level to a university that made a ton of money off of him and gave him... Yes, I understand he got an education or has the opportunity for an education. Um, But it's crazy. I mean, these kids, if they're hungry and they want to eat and they don't have any money, they can't accept a gift from anyone else to eat. If they do, it's a violation of their amateurism. It's insane. All that being said, uh, there's a really good John Oliver on the NCAA and there's a really good South Park episode. So (laughs) watch those if you want more insight into why it's messed up. But... um, my, my point in, ex- in explaining it isn't to advocate that we have to fix it. I do think it's wrong and it should be changed. However, I also recognize that there's actually not, uh, in, in my view, a huge impetus to do so. Because, again, like 
if prison life and and the the condition that we put other humans in in prison is like it is, and we're not solving that, how are we solving the NCAA? I mean, it's it's bad and it's unfair and it shouldn't be that way, but there are a lot greater injustices going on in the world. Um, and so while, you know, obviously prisoners prisons are designed for people who have broken the the contract with society and in some cases done really abhorrent things that I I I support that they're locked up for and I support that they're not able to participate as members of society for I still don't think that we should create a a, a torture pit um and that's kind of what it is and it, it might not it, it, you know the torture isn't necessarily administered by the facility but it's absolutely enabled by it um, and I, you know, to be clear, when I say it's the correctional officers, I don't mean to say that correctional officers are all corrupt people or something. I don't think that. I think that they're generally low-paid people who, because of that, are susceptible to either being bribed or if they could have nothing to do with money. They just get intimidated. They get threatened that, hey, I need you to do this, and if you don't, we're coming for your family. Because, again, these gangs are not contained within the prison. They extend well outside of that and have influence and reach well outside of that. Um, I don't know. It's just a it's a it's a pretty terrifying situation. And uh, I I hope that it's something that we see change sooner rather than later. You know, it seemed like we were headed that direction with with Obama as president. But now. With the conservatives in control, it, it doesn't seem to be, you know, that same way. And I, yes, I realize that Kim Kardashian has gone to Donald Trump and they freed a guy or something. Again, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about people being wrongly convicted. That's also a separate issue that that's a legitimate problem. But just it shouldn't be hell to go to the prison. I mean, it should be you should have no rights. Maybe you should be really bored. Maybe you should feel, you know, undignified to some extent. Um because you have to sleep in a little bunk that's right next to a little toilet or I don't know, whatever. But you shouldn't have to fear for the safety of your own self and your your loved ones and anyone you know. and all that, That's crazy. Uh, and there shouldn't be drugs there and there shouldn't be weapons there. So, you know, I don't know. People shrug their shoulders and act like, well, we've done everything we can and this is this is how it shakes out. I just I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't know what the I don't know if it's the the for-profit prison system that really drives it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but something's got to give because it's not not acceptable as it is. Anyway, highly recommend that you check out Fresh Out Life After the Penitentiary on YouTube with Big Herc. Um, like I said, interesting stories and, and kind of just a really fascinating insight onto what it's like in a world that I think most of us probably don't, don't know that much about and have little empathy for and, you know, understand that it's no joke there and it, it's uh, <laughs> certainly not somewhere you want to go and, and frankly, I don't think it's somewhere we should want anyone to go.
Well, that is going to do it for today's show. Thank you so much again for listening. As always, I'll have some links uh, in the show description to the different things I suggested. Uh, the Fresh Out Life After the Penitentiary YouTube channel. It's got the different interviews with the, the previous former prisoners and that sort of stuff. And then I'll link to uh, the Joe Rogan podcast I talked about, as well as the XX. Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, I think you will you can find independently of me providing any links. Some of them are on Netflix, but most of them aren't any longer. Uh, as always, I, I do invite you to email me, walker at thewalkshowpodcast.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at the Walk Show Podcast. Uh, excuse me, at, at the Walk Show Pod. Instagram, the Walk Show. Facebook, the Walk Show Podcast. And again, you, you can always email me directly. Love to read your your comments and questions. And if you've got anything you'd like me to bring up on a future episode, I'd be happy to do so. So, thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.